0: Hey there, and welcome to the very first episode of In a Bite. My name is Charlotte May. I'm a nutritionist, presenter, and a self-proclaimed food geek. In the world we live in today, most information on nutrition and health is accessible. But unfortunately, they're not always reliable, and it can get quite controversial, leaving many people confused. And this is why I started In a Bite. Through this podcast, I'll debunk nutrition myths and misconceptions, all based on the latest research. I hope for this podcast to be a source of useful information for you to use in your everyday life so we can live easier, happier days around food. So if you like this episode or find something interesting about it, please share it on your socials and with your friends and family. Feel free to also drop me a DM on Instagram if you have suggestions for future topics. Now, let's get into it. In this first episode, we'll be kicking off with a hotly debated topic globally, monosodium glutamate, more commonly known as MSG. I'm addressing this because living in Asia, it's one of the few things that gets constantly spoken about. But most of us don't know if the constellations of symptoms that come with consuming MSG are really true. Growing up, I would hear the adults around me complain about headaches or palpitations after eating certain foods. And most of the time, this thing called MSG was said to be the culprit. So quite naturally, I associated MSG to something that wasn't good for you. But I always wondered if it was just an old wife's tale. In fact, I have never really seen what MSG looks like until a few years ago. I was having a meal at a restaurant in Hanoi while visiting my brother who was living in Vietnam at the time. Every table in this particular restaurant had a small bowl of a white condiment. Now, because the crystals looked far larger than table salt, I had the impression it was sugar and couldn't comprehend why anyone would be adding sugar into their soup. I later found out it was MSG and quite equally couldn't comprehend why anyone would be adding it to their soup either. Because in my mind, MSG was a naughty little additive that would give you uncomfortable sensations after consumption. This sparked my curiosity, and so I went on to find out more about it. I wanted to know if there was any evidence to back the claims we commonly hear on the negative side effects of consuming MSG. Because frankly, I personally didn't experience them, aside from thirst, which is quite normal, especially after eating a particularly salty meal. Now before we jump into the meat of it, Just a little note to say that I'm here to provide you with the facts about MSG, not to influence you in any particular way or to discount any experiences with it. Remember, we have varying levels of sensitivities towards different foods. Let's now have a closer look at MSG, and you can decide once and for all your take on it. Firstly, what is MSG? It's a seasoning and flavor enhancer. It's the purest form of umami, also known as the fifth taste. Umami translates to pleasant, savory taste, and pretty much can't be replicated by combining any other known tastes such as sweet, salty, sour, or bitter. MSG gives the same taste experience as umami, and in most cases, enhances it. It was a kitchen staple across Asia in the 30s, then was widely used in commercial food production globally. And today, we see it added in foods ranging from snacks like potato chips or crisps, depending where in the world you're listening from, seasonings, soups, spice mixes, bouillon cubes, and fast food. Yes, no wonder their fried chicken is so tasty. Now, a little bit of the sciencey stuff. MSG is the sodium salt of glutamate. Glutamate is one of the most commonly naturally occurring amino acids. It is produced in our bodies and is also found in many everyday high-protein foods, such as meat, eggs, cheese, and plant foods like tomatoes, mushrooms, and some seaweed. In fact, glutamate can also be found in human breast milk, which happens to have 6-9 to nine times more glutamate than cow's milk. The receptors on our tongues recognize glutamate as the umami taste, and that's why we find these foods so tasty. To come to think of it, it's no wonder burgers are so tasty. It's got meat, cheese, tomatoes, and sometimes mushrooms. Doesn't it all start to make sense now? So sure, glutamate has been around for as long as we've been consuming these foods. But how did MSG, that odorless white crystalline powder, come about? Now here's where Dr. Ikeda, a biochemist, comes in. He found that his wife's delicious vegetable and dried seaweed soup had a pretty meaty flavor, despite not containing any. So back in 1908, he conducted a few experiments. He evaporated it and managed to extract a crystalline compound that turned out to be glutamate, which you now know has a savory flavor. He noticed it was different to the flavors of sweet, salty, sour, bitter, and so coined it umami, which is based on the Japanese word umai, which means delicious. He filed a patent for MSG and went on to found the Ajinomoto Group in 1909, which has today become one of the leading brands of MSG. So in short, this guy pretty much invented the shortcut to enhancing the savory umami taste in our foods. Now, how is it produced? Today, MSG isn't extracted the way Dr. Ikeda did, but it is synthesized through the fermentation of starchy ingredients such as sugarcane, sugar beets, and corn, amongst others. All natural ingredients. And chemically, it consists of nothing more than glutamate, sodium, and water. If you're wondering, both natural glutamate and monosodium glutamate are indistinguishable by the body, and they're metabolized using the same processes. And in terms of its nutrition profile, there's not much to report about it. In terms of what shows up on nutrition labels, the only notable nutrient it has is sodium, but more on that later. I've been speaking about how glutamate-containing foods impart an umami taste and how MSG can help enhance it. And the key word here is enhance. This is because MSG actually doesn't taste good on its own. And this is where it differs from salt. In fact, overusing MSG in a dish will give it a pretty strange flavor, and it also doesn't work well in sweet dishes. It's better off used to enhance the savoriness of a dish and give it a rounded flavor. Okay, so now we know a little bit more about MSG. So what's the big deal about it, and how did it get the reputation it has today? Since the invention of MSG in 1909, all was going well until 1968, when a Dr. Robert Man Kwok wrote in a letter to the New England Journal of Medicine. Now, take note of these details that I'm about to share. He was a man of Southern Chinese descent who had been living in the U.S. for eight years and worked as a researcher at the National Biomedical Research Foundation. In this letter, he mentioned concerns around a few uncomfortable sensations he would get after eating at a Chinese restaurant in the U.S., and he coined the group of sensations Chinese Restaurant Syndrome. Now, probably not the most culturally appropriate name, but that's fine, we move on. The sensations included numbness at the back of his neck, as well as general weakness and heart palpitations. And he speculated that soy sauce, cooking wine, high salt, or MSG could be the cause for his symptoms. The same journal received 10 other letters, some even from doctors, recounting similar symptoms including headaches and heavy perspiration, and having the same speculations as to the cause for it. Not taking away any of their experiences, but I wonder how much of this was influenced by confirmation bias. One of them even mentioned feeling a tightening of the face and temple muscles, numbness, weeping, and even fainting. The New York Times published an article about it six weeks later, with the headline, Chinese Restaurant Syndrome Puzzles Doctors. And without any scientific studies done at this point, the media latched onto the idea of MSG causing Chinese Restaurant Syndrome, and this sent everyone into a frenzy. Cue sensationalistic journalism, biased science, and a lot of confusion amongst the Chinese restaurant owners. Talk about going viral before the age of the internet. I managed to get hold of the New York Times article. And I thought it was funny when the editor reached out to Chinese restaurant owners for a comment, and one of them responded with, the only headaches I get are from running this place and paying taxes. Quite fairly so, another owner responded, asking why then were their regular customers coming back repeatedly if they were experiencing such symptoms? Would you believe that this decades-long food controversy started with just one letter? Now. More on the letter at the end of the episode, and trust me, you'd really want to hear what actually happens. And on the term Chinese restaurant syndrome, thankfully, it has been more appropriately renamed to MSG symptom complex, so I will be using this term for the rest of this episode. So now the question is, do any of these anecdotes hold any weight in the world of science? We've grown so concerned over MSG without anyone really knowing the mechanisms why or whether it's truly a cause for concern. I mean, if you grew up hearing a certain messaging, you just believe it to be true, right? I guess it doesn't really help that restaurants describe their food as being MSG-free and food manufacturers display in huge lettering on their packaging that it contains no MSG. And frankly speaking, when you see the word no before something, you naturally assume it isn't any good for you. So let's look at the scientific data collected over the years. Many studies have been conducted to test whether the consumption of MSG has adverse effects on health. They range from studies done on rats being given extremely high amounts of MSG through their food, to studies on small groups of humans fed high doses of MSG or a placebo. With regard to MSG symptom complex in particular, here are a few notable studies. In 1995, the U.S. Food and Drug Administration commissioned a study to examine the safety of MSG. They concluded that there was no scientifically verifiable evidence of adverse effects in most individuals exposed to high levels of MSG. That said, they did, however, identify some short term and generally mild symptoms that may occur in some sensitive individuals who consume at least three grams of MSG without food. Now, to put that into context, a typical serving of a dish with added MSG contains less than 0.5 grams of MSG. And consuming more than 3 grams of MSG on an empty stomach is pretty unlikely. A recent review published in 2019 in the Journal of Comprehensive Reviews in Food Science and Food Safety looked at several studies testing the link between MSG and MSG symptom complex. These were all double-blinded, meaning neither participants nor their researchers knew which intervention the participants were receiving. And most showed no differences between subjects that were fed MSG or a placebo. As an example, one such study tested on subjects who identified themselves as having reacted negatively to MSG in the past. It's a pretty comprehensive study that tested MSG doses of 5 grams with and without food. Unfortunately, the results revealed inconsistencies. Firstly, despite being self-identified as being sensitive to MSG, 38% of them reacted to five grams of MSG, 13% responded to the placebo, and 14% responded to both MSG and placebo in the first round. And here, they were on an empty stomach. From the subjects that reacted to the five grams of MSG, those who were eligible for the next step were retested again and only half of them reacted the same way to the same dose. Hence, inconsistent results. The study goes on, but in general, there was no consistency in the reactions towards MSG, and we're talking about 5 grams of MSG taken on an empty stomach, which, as I mentioned previously, is unlikely in a day-to-day situation. In the last stage of the trial, eligible test subjects were fed 5 grams of MSG alongside food, And here, they did not react similarly as when fed the same dose in an empty stomach. Here, we can conclude that large doses of MSG consumed without food may elicit more symptoms for those who are sensitive towards MSG. Now, for those of you listening that identify similarly to the test subjects, hopefully you'd feel relieved to know that any symptoms reported during the test were mild and went away quickly. Since some of the symptoms reported under the MSG symptom complex involves difficulty in breathing, the same review looked into some studies that linked MSG consumption and asthma. One of the studies that was conducted in 2012 on a large number of Chinese adults found no significant association between MSG intake and asthma. Other smaller studies from 1998 also showed no link. A few other studies looked into the association between MSG and rhinitis symptoms, so things like nasal congestion, sneezing, or even an itchy nose. However, due to a lack of reliable clinical studies, no conclusions could be drawn here. In terms of symptoms such as headaches, some studies found a significant increase in headaches and an elevation of systolic blood pressure when given higher doses of MSG. That said, sample sizes of these studies were small, so it makes it difficult to extrapolate them to the general population. Some studies they reviewed also noted that food molecules other than MSG could be triggering the headaches. In conclusion, strong clinical evidence is lacking as many of the studies did not have strong designs. Not to mention, the fact that the taste of MSG can be so easily picked up by the test subjects makes it tough to get completely unbiased reporting in any studies testing the effect of MSG consumption on humans. To quote the U.S. Food and Drug Administration, there is no evidence linking MSG food use to any serious long-term medical problems in the general population. The Committee on Toxicity of Chemicals in Food, Consumer Products, and the Environment also published similar views in 2006. And if you'd like to know if there are any recommendations from international health bodies in terms of safe levels to consume MSG, it's out there. Okay, this is going to be a mouthful, so bear with me. The Joint Food and Agriculture Organization and World Health Organization Expert Committee on Food Additives, otherwise known as JECFA, have indicated an ADI of not specified for MSG, and ADI stands for acceptable daily intake. So an ADI of not specified essentially indicates that on the basis of available data, the ingredient, when used at levels necessary to achieve its desired effect, does not represent any health risks the International Glutamate Technical Committee also reached the same consensus when evaluating the use of MSG in 2018. So hopefully, that irons out the MSG symptom complex for you. Now, another misconception about MSG is that it's high in sodium, because after all, it does enhance the flavor of a food. However, an important distinction to make here is that salt imparts a salty taste to foods. However, MSG enhances the savoriness, or umami, of a dish, and not necessarily its saltiness. And believe it or not, MSG is lower in sodium compared to salt. Salt contains roughly 39% of sodium, while MSG contains only 12%, which is a good third lesser. Quite a surprise given how much it can enhance the flavor of food. If you're wondering why the concern around sodium or salt, Well, in short, excessive salt intake can contribute to chronic diseases such as hypertension, other heart problems, kidney disease, and osteoporosis. In fact, it is one of the biggest contributors to cardiovascular disease. According to the World Health Organization, healthy adults are recommended no more than 5 grams of salt a day, which is equivalent to 2,000 milligrams of sodium. Just for context, one teaspoon of salt weighs 6 grams, and this contains 2,300 milligrams of sodium, so slightly more than the recommended daily limit. Most people consume salt for taste. So knowing that MSG contains a third the sodium of salt, it could very well be the key to reducing one's sodium intake without compromising on taste. And this is why food companies who aim to cut back on the sodium content of their foods are using MSG in their products. So when MSG is used in place of salt in a bag of chips, the food manufacturers could be doing you a favor. To be sure, check the sodium content in the nutrition label to make sure it suits what you're looking for. Another tip is to check and see where along the ingredients list MSG sits. Ingredients are listed in descending order of the amount used, So ideally, you wouldn't want it being the first few ingredients of what you're consuming because that may indicate a high sodium food. Also, just as a side note, when food manufacturers declare MSG in their ingredients lists, they can either indicate it using its name MSG or its food additive code number 621. So that's just something to look out for. So now rounding this up, is MSG actually bad for you? With all that I've shared, I'll let you decide that for yourself. As science states, each of us react to MSG differently. One thing we've learned is that consuming MSG on an empty stomach doesn't help. So for example, before having a big bowl of soup at a restaurant that you know uses MSG, have some yogurt or a small fruit before the meal to line your tummy. And if you know you're sensitive to MSG, try to avoid it where you can. And if you do react, At least evidence suggests that these reactions are, at worst, short-term and have no lasting consequences. And for the MSG curious out there, if you want to give it a go at home, culinary recommendations vary. Most of them involve using MSG alongside salt. And I suppose the idea is to use slightly less salt than you usually would, and using a touch of MSG to amp up the flavors. Some say to replace a third of the salt in your recipe with MSG while others suggest using a 10 to 1 ratio of salt to MSG. So it varies quite a fair bit. I've not tried them out, so I'm not much help here, but I'd say to maybe stick to a more conservative amount to begin with and slowly work upwards to see what works best for your preferences. Use it in most of your savory dishes like soups, stews, stir fries, eggs, etc. Adding it at the same time you would salt. But never use it in your baking. Stick to salt for that one. And as for me personally, I've known in the past couple of years that MSG is safe for consumption. And I felt alright eating it. Though if I had to choose between two food items, I would still go for the one that doesn't have MSG. But the only exception on make is for mayonnaise. Nothing beats Kewpie mayo. And after all, David Chang did say that Kewpie mayo is the best in the world because it contains MSG. But anyway, back to the point. Now that I've truly gotten my head into the research papers and have read more about it from a culinary point of view, instead of making my decisions based on whether or not the food item contains MSG, I'd look at the sodium levels instead, because that's what matters more to me. And as someone who cooks, I'm a little torn. As I'm sitting here recording this episode, I'm legitimately making a mental note to get some MSG so I can try adding it to some of my dishes. At the same time, I don't like the idea of using MSG in my cooking because I want to know that the food is flavorful because of the amazing ingredients and wonderful cooking skills of the chef. But you know what? MSG will go a far longer way in the kitchen than my pride would. Put it this way, I'm open to experimenting and using it in some dishes where I want an extra something but I probably won't use it very often as I still like my foods tasting as they naturally do. And if I had one concern as a nutritionist around MSG, it would be whether or not it would create an over-reliance on the complex umami flavor it gives foods, such that when a food doesn't contain MSG, one might feel as though something was missing, and they would end up adding salt just to achieve a stronger flavor and thereby increasing their sodium intake. Now, after all that, let's go back to where we left off earlier with the letter by Dr. Robert Homan Kwok. Remember how I said there was more to it? Well, it was all a hoax. Kind of. Well, sources say they think it is, but they're not entirely sure. I'm not sure. No one is Sure. But here's what went down, according to the producers at This American Life, a public radio program in the U.S., in an episode that aired in February 2019. So in 2018, an orthopedic surgeon named Howard Steele came forward saying that he was the one who wrote the letter Chinese Restaurant Syndrome and that he had made up the name Dr. Robert Homan Kwok, which was meant to be a play on the phrase human crock of shit. He had made up this identity, including the fact that he was a researcher at the National Biomedical Research Foundation. He wrote the letter back then as a bet between another friend of his that said that it would be impossible for an orthopedic surgeon to have an article published in something as prestigious as the New England Journal of Medicine. It was meant to be a joke. In an interview, he said that after the article was published, he had written to the editor of the journal saying that it was all fake, please take it down, but the editor wasn't having any of it and blocked off all his calls. Now, it doesn't end there. The reporter who interviewed Howard Steele later found out in his own research that the National Biomedical Research Foundation, which Howard said he had made up, actually exists and that they did, at one point, have a researcher named Dr. Robert Homan Kwok. And this was also in the 60s. Coincidence or not? It also seemed odd that, if the letter was really fake, the real Dr. Robert Homan Kwok nor his institution said anything about it. At this point of the research, it was almost impossible to set the record straight on what really happened, because Howard Steele, along with the friend that he made the bet with, and Robert Homan had all passed away. Now, isn't the story just nuts? Thankfully, both Howard and Robert have children. So the reporters reached out to them, as well as a supposed colleague of Robert at the Research Foundation. Robert's kids and colleague affirmed that he did write the letter. It also makes sense when comparing the information in the letter about him having moved to the US eight years prior, which he really did. So now we're left with two possibilities one that has been telling a lie for decades about him having written a letter that sparked a global frenzy over one food ingredient, and the other that someone had innocently written a letter with genuine concern, but ended up having someone making up a story about having it written instead. Does this even make sense? Now, if you're confused, you're not alone. Finally, the producer of the show, This American Life, made a call to Howard Steele's daughter, Anna Steele who grew up knowing that her father had written this letter. After hearing that there was a Dr. Robert Homan Kwok and whose children and colleague had confirmed to be the author of the letter, Anna immediately understood it all and said that her father, who was always somewhat of a jokester, was probably playing a prank. He played a prank saying that he had written the letter and claimed credit for everything that had unfolded, though he had nothing to do with it. Talk about fake news on the front of MSG, but also on how it all began. Who would have guessed? Now, that brings us to the end of the episode. And I sure hope you've learned something new. If there's anything I want you to take away from this episode, aside from this mystery of a story, it's that MSG is safe and perfectly alright to use in food to boost flavor. And we have the science to prove it. I hope you now have a better understanding of the ingredient, have had your questions answered, and now have a better ability to exercise more awareness of the flavors in your foods. After all, we're here to understand our food, how it interacts with our bodies, and to build a closer relationship with the food we eat. Thank you for listening to the very first episode of In a Bite. I will be dedicating time for Q&A on each episode, so if you have any questions about anything I spoke about, do drop me a DM on Instagram or email me at hello at CharlotteMay.com, and I'll be answering them in the next episode. If you want to read more about the papers I referenced, you can head over to my website to check out the show notes. And to keep up with future topics, subscribe to the channel and follow me on Facebook, Instagram, and TikTok at the Charlotte May. Feel free to also write in if you have any topics you'd want me to cover next. If you're curious about intermittent fasting and what it's all about, tune in to the next episode to hear more.